All right, I really have a complex now. Last week, no one showed up because I was preaching, and now this week, well, you showed up. Thank you. But man, a lot of people stay away when they know I'm preaching. And so uh, I guarantee you next week when Car- uh, Carrie, Casey, what's his name? <laughs> when old what's-his-name does the congregational update, this place will be packed. You just wait. Just wait. Okay. Our text today is Ephesians 2. I'm just kidding, of course. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And this text clearly divides into two sections. Uh, the first section looks at the pre-Christian state. And then the second looks at the post-Christian state, before Christ and after Christ. First, the pre-Christian state is the bad news. And I think one of the things that's really missing today, one of the huge challenges in outreach and evangelism is convincing people they need Jesus. I mean, you're not going to want the good news, and you're not going to be interested in the good news if you don't know that there's bad news. And the bad news is we all have cancer called sin. And if I don't know I have cancer... I'm not going to see the need for a cure. And a lot of people, well, I'm okay. My life's pretty good. I feel okay. Even even if life is not good, a lot of people don't know they have this cancer. And that's where we are spiritually with a lot of people today. They have the cancer and don't know it. In fact, it's even worse than that. We're already dead because of this cancer. So let's read this. Um, As for you, in verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is pre-Christ in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who has not worked in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the pre-Christian state, and it's pretty negative to say the least. Dead, disobedient, gratifying the flesh, uh, deserving wrath, but it gets good, verse 4. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Twice, notice that phrase, united in Christ Jesus. And last week I gave an assignment to those of you who are here to read through Ephesians and underline or circle all the times it talks about being in Christ or Christ in you. Highlight all the times Jesus or Christ is mentioned because you'll see this is a Christ-saturated book. It'll help your relationship to Christ to read it that way and to do some circling. Verse 8, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you cannot take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Last week, Paul talked about the power of God in raising Jesus from the dead. Now he talks about the power of God in raising us from the dead. Very clear contrast between the pre-Christ and post-Christ state. Pre-Christ is dead, but now in Christ we are alive. I was in the grave, and now I'm living in grace. It's basically the old nature versus the grace nature. So when we took on Christ, some changes took place, dramatic changes. And this is one of the areas where I've always felt a little bit, mm, I'm not sure what the word, inadequate or inferior, I I don't know what it is, but I have never had a real dramatic conversion per se. I've not had this 
major turnaround in my life where once I was doing drugs and illicit sex and murder and polluting the planet and littering and speeding and texting while driving and rooting for the patriots, all these evil, ugly things, you know. And then the hand of Jesus touched me and the angels were singing and the lights flashed all around me and kind of like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and bam, I was going to know U-turn from one direction to the other direction. Nope. I grew up in the church. No dramatic, miraculous conversion. Now, I did have some turning points in my life like we have, all have. But when I read Ephesians 2, eh, part of it doesn't resonate with me, at least not as much as it might with some. But even in my case, even if it didn't look like I've had this dramatic turnaround, when I became a Christian, there was a major change that took place. The difference of being in Christ and not in Christ are night and day. So the first part of this text is a description of everybody and anybody without Jesus. This is everyone. It's your neighbor. It's your child. This is your mom and dad. Everyone is dead without Christ. Everyone is bankrupt. Everyone is corrupt, deserving God's wrath. And I know a lot of people in our culture today would cringe at hearing this. A lot of people say, well, we're not that bad. Look at how good I am or look good someone does. You know, it's almost a religion today that people are really basically good. But when you look at the world... This description by Paul is pretty accurate, isn't it? A lot of evil around us, a lot of corruption. I mean, you watch the news, there's a lot of hate and jealousy. Most people would say, yeah, the world is uh, kind of in a mess. One commentary I read said this, I sometimes wonder if good and thoughtful people have ever been more depressed about the human predicament than they are today. You agree with that? I I think I would. That was written in 1979, 40 years ago. But it could be written today. It could have been written a hundred years ago. Every age has had this ugly human predicament. So, most people would agree, yep, the world is a mess, but, and here's where the challenge comes, most people think there's a lot of evil in the world, but I'm not the reason. And those politicians, it's social media, it's creepy people's fault, it's the government's fault, it's big business fault. Deep down, we really don't think we're that bad. A lot of people don't think they're that bad. The world's a mess, but I'm okay. I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly not what Paul is describing here. And Paul categorically refutes that. He says our existence outside of Christ, one word sums it up, is dead. We're not just sick or uneducated or underprivileged or psychologically damaged. We are dead. The ultimate problem all people face is death. We all know this death is coming, but Paul says it's worse. We're already dead, separated from the source of life. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says, all lost sinners are dead, and the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. The world is one vast graveyard. Which raises the question, why do some people appear to be very much alive, and vigorous, and good, and lively, and intelligent, emotionally and mentally pretty well off, and you're just pretty good people, are they dead? Yep. Dead because there's a sphere of reality that is beyond all those other categories I just mentioned. What matters most is what Paul says in chapter 4, verse 18, we are separated from the life of God. Life of God, and when we're separated, we're dead. First Timothy says, the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So even though people may look alive, they are actually walking dead people, separated from the life of God. Another word to describe this is the word Jesus used, the word lost. There's a man who was lost in the desert for three days and suddenly he hears the word mush. 
And looking up, he thinks he sees a mirage, an Eskimo on a sled driving a team of huskies in the middle of the desert. And to his surprise, the sled comes to a stop at his feet, and the man realized it's not a mirage. And so he said to the Eskimo, I don't know why you're here, but man, I'm glad to see you. Thank goodness. I've been lost for three days. And the Eskimo is panting and out of breath. And he said, you think you're lost. <laughs> That's my joke for the day. Sorry, folks. That's the best I can do. But we're all lost. Some are more lost than others, maybe. But we're all lost. So Paul lists here three dominating influences that control Dead, lost people. First of all is the world. In verse 2, when you followed the ways of this world, world here is uh, the whole social value system that is alien to God. Uh, The secular world that ignores or repudiates God. The amoral world that ignores and repudiates absolutes. The materialistic world that glorifies consumerism. Those are all controlling the corpse. Pre-Christ humanity follows the way of the world. So when people complain about ugly politics and hate and division in the world and war and, and crime, just remember that's a reflection of every human being. Because we are all, outside of Christ, controlled by this world. Individual people are really not better than the world. We are part of the problem. Most of us condemn the world, but still, deep down, think we're better than that. Anne Frank of Holocaust fame said, Despite everything, I believe that people are really good at heart. I wish that were true. Paul goes on. It actually gets worse. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And, here's the second thing, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. We are also dominated when we're outside of Christ by the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who's that? Satan, okay, I heard it, the devil. Dead people's lives are determined and shaped by Satan. There was a book that was quite popular several years ago called Your God is Too Small. Shortly after that came an article that was entitled Your Devil is Too Small. And the great Christian thinkers and leaders of history have all taken the devil seriously, including Jesus. If you don't believe there's a devil, you don't believe Jesus. Okay, he is real. He is alive and active. He is powerful. And when we don't take the devil and evil seriously, that's when apathy comes into the church. We think, well, I'm okay. The devil's main tools are accusation. You're no good. God can never forgive you. God can never love you. You've gone too far. You're scum. And a lot of people believe that about themselves. The second tool is temptation to get us to fall into sin, make sin look attractive. You know, sin is the solution to my problem. I'll do it my way, not God's way. And then the third, and maybe the most deadly, is deception. Fool you into thinking you don't need God, you don't need the church, you don't need the Bible, you don't need fellowship. Fooled into thinking we're okay, and he blinds us, and that's when we don't see our desperate need for Christ and for grace. In our natural state, we are dominated by the world, by Satan. We're accused and tempted and deceived. In that state, and then third, verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, doing what? Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The word flesh here is often translated sinful nature. There is something in our natural nature, natural nature, our natural self that is selfish and sinful. Look at children. Somewhere at or about the age of one, something happens. The sin nature starts coming out. Babies are great until about one. And then you wonder, what happened? Where'd this come from? I didn't teach this child to say that or to do that. And then it gets really bad at age three. You don't want a three-year-old, trust me. 
It's just in them. Sinful nature. And they can't help it, and yet they can. He, see, here's the, the weird, the irony, the awfulness of sin. You can't help but to sin, and yet you have a choice. Kind of like when Paul says, I don't want to sin, but I do. And as we get older, we still sin. We're just a little more sophisticated in covering up and justifying it. We're still selfish. We just do it in less obvious ways. I can't help myself, and yet I'm free to choose. Why do I choose the bad? Because I am defective. My natural self will go toward sin. My natural self is defective. Look at the person next to you. You are looking at a defective person. By nature, there's something wrong with that person. Ask them, what's wrong with... Uh, don't ask. We'll, we'll answer that today for you. And these three enslave us in the old nature. The world, the devil, our sinful nature. These three we cannot escape. We cannot overcome on our own. And until we recognize this as the natural state of humanity, the cancer that infects us uh, to the point that we are actually dead and separated from life, we will never really see our need for the gospel. Until we recognize the bad news, we'll never see our need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and desperately ask for his grace. Think about it. Think of the best person you know, a really, really, really good person. No good person would say they're perfect, of course. You know, we've all got a flaw or two. And let's say that this person does something wrong or sinful only three times a day. They have a bad thought or a selfish way, which is ridiculous because even good people do their goodness out of mixed motives. Everyone has all kinds of sin and darkness in there, and sometimes we're not even aware of it. You've probably sinned already three times just during this sermon. Just with some thoughts and words. Anyway, and we're not even aware of it. So anyway, this person is really, really, really good and only sins three times a day, which is a joke. He's 40 years old and three times a day would be, what, a thousand times a year. And if you don't count the first year because kids are innocent until age one, uh, 39,000 sins okay, of a good 40-year-old. That's a lot of sin and that's really being really, really optimistic. Okay, Well, let's say we find a person who is 99% good. I mean, just, you can't find a flaw. Just Surely, God would let a 99% good person in. Well, God is 100% pure. And if he allows any impurity in, even 1%, into his kingdom, that's like allowing 1% of cancer into your body. You want 1% cancer in you? It'll spread. It'll infect That's why God doesn't want any sin in your life or in heaven because God knows what it'll do. And that's why we are not saved based on goodness because all our goodness is tainted, all our motives are mixed, and God has to cleanse us completely. It's completely his work. Now, let me say this too. That's all kind of negative, I know. We are all also, on the other side of the coin, incredibly more unique and special than we could imagine. We need to remember that we are made in the image of God. We are more special than we can imagine. And you'll see people doing all kinds of heroism and bravery and sacrifice, the capacity to love by humans, uh, because we've been created in this image of God. So we are more special than we could imagine, but we're also more incredibly more fallen and broken than we can imagine. There is so much ugly, even in the best of us. Even our best actions are tainted. Even our righteous deeds are not so righteous. None of us fully glorifies God. I wish I could say I do everything for God's glory. I don't. I wish I could say Jesus has fully taken control of my life, but he hasn't. And neither can you. 
What I can say is that Jesus has fully satisfied God for me. It's all about him. Now, why is Paul mentioning all this bad stuff? Why do we have to hear this bad news? Uh, Some preachers won't use the word sin. They'd say, well, people don't need to hear that stuff. They, They already feel bad enough already, and they need to be affirmed. Well, we've been affirming for about half a century. How's that working for us? You have cancer, but I don't want you to feel bad, so I'm going to say, well, you're healthy, you're okay. Is that going to solve anyone? Solve anything? So very popular understanding today is that there's a basic human goodness, which there is some truth to that because we're made in God's image. But the thought today, almost a religion, is if people are self-absorbed and messed up and dysfunctional and they're bad, it's only because they lack healthy self-esteem or maybe some bad things have happened to them in their childhood and they just don't recognize that innate goodness that is in them. And, And so we should tell them to be good to themselves and to live for themselves and not others. Be true to yourself. Encourage the people to find out what their dreams are and take steps to fulfill them. And that is the way to healing. And I would say about that, that all heresy has some elements of truth. There's some, a little bit of truth in that, but here's the problem. That approach assumes that self-centeredness is not natural. That self-centeredness is only the product of some kind of mistreatment. And it is almost a religion today that most people, at their core, are good. If you're going to be true to yourself, you know, I don't want to tell some people, be true to yourself. Whoa. If you're going to be true to yourself, you better make sure you're being true to your surrendered self, your healed and healthy self, the one God made you to be. No major religion in the world teaches this Western mindset, and yet it is the popular view of many in our culture today. The Christian view is that if someone is messed up and is self-absorbed and dysfunctional, you know, whatever happened to them did not create that self-centeredness, it just enhanced it. That self-centeredness already existed prior to any negative influence in their lives. So if we give someone self-esteem, we have not solved the problem. We may have helped, but the basic problem is still there. So the first step, we're dead at our core, and we need help. The world is dead and needs help. By the way, (laughs) I threw this in last minute. There are four big helps for us to see our own fallen nature. These are four mirrors us. Number one, get married. You will find out that you aren't nearly as good as you thought you were. Marriage is a great mirror, right? Yeah. Number two, have kids. You'll find out sins you never thought. You're not nearly as patient as you thought you were, nearly as kind, nearly as much in control as you thought you were, especially if you have a three-year-old. Number three, or teenager, uh, shouldn't have said that. Number three, Get involved in the church. You'll start seeing others aren't nearly as holy as they look on Sunday morning. You may even find out the preacher's not nearly as holy as he looks on Sunday morning. Now, there's others, but those are three big... Now, are those bad? Marriage, having kids, being involved in the church? No, they're good things. But it's good to be see. We need these mirrors I mean, to see our flaws. Here's the fourth one, and it is the best one, the most accurate one, is Scripture, the Bible, God's revealed truth. That's why you have to be in the Word then you can get a true view of who you really are. Okay, let's get to the good news. But God is so rich, and I won't spend much, as much time on this. God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much in verse 4. The word but is a wonderful word in the scripture. Things are bad, but. It's called the divine conjunction. The divine but. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher, said years ago, these two words, but God, in and of themselves, contain the whole of the gospel. It's all about God. God is rich in mercy. God loves us. God doesn't want to curse you. He wants to bless you. He loves you. It's an amazing, amazing grace. But God, while we were languishing in this cancerous death, uh, even though we were dead, God, but God, gave us life. Now, Paul listed three influences of the old nature, the world, and the devil, and the sinful nature. There's then four distinctions that characterize the new creation. Verse 5, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace you've been saved. We are alive in Christ, number one. When you became a Christian, something deep in your soul came alive. It might be very small. It might seem very insignificant. It may be that you've even covered it up or, or suppressed it, but there's a new life in you and it can grow and it can become more and more dominant in your life. Jesus has come in and you are now alive, spiritually alive. And then verse 6, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. Notice the parallel between us and Christ. Christ was dead, we're dead. Christ was raised, we're raised. Christ is exalted, we're exalted. Seated with him in the heavenly realms. So number two, we're exalted in Christ, not only alive. It's not a change in physical location when he talks about being seated in the heavenly realms. I mean, these people were still in Ephesus and we're still in Mount Pulaski, but it's a change in status and privilege connected to enthronement. We are now part of the kingdom. And this is a present reality. This is what we become now, free from death, free from captivity, free to do good works, free to approach the Father. Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. Instead of the world, we have heaven. Instead of the devil, we have Christ. Instead of the sinful nature, we have the Holy Spirit. And then the purpose is in verse 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us as shown in all He has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. He does this to demonstrate the riches of God's grace. We become examples of God's grace and mercy. Back in chapter 1, in raising Christ, God displayed His power. Here in raising us, He displays His grace and power. Down in verse 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. We are this beautiful picture of what he has created because Christ is living in us. And one of the things, in fact, this might be the number one thing I love about being in ministry, and that is seeing the grace of God work in people and seeing the changes. I mean, once this person was here and now they're here. Wow, Christ has done some stuff in this person. The growth, the demonstration of God's work in their lives. And it gives me goosebumps. Then verse 9 Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago or the good works. That's the fourth mark of Christ, the good works in us, that he does in us. Now, we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Good works is not the root of salvation. It is the fruit of salvation. Christ comes in, makes us alive, and then your life starts displaying that, starts gradually changing. Philippians 1 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Now, I left this to the end so you wouldn't run out uh, because I'm going to say the most controversial thing I'm going to say all morning now. And some of you may, have, may not agree with this. Here it is. A non-Christian cannot do good works. 
A non-Christian cannot do... How could you say that? I know non-Christians that do a lot of good. True. Hear me out. When a good deed is done by a non-follower of Jesus, who will get the credit? Something or someone other than Jesus or God will get the glory. Ronald McDonald House is a wonderful thing. Who gets the glory? McDonald's. Government programs can be good. Who gets the glory? The government. The military does some good. Who gets the glory? Your neighbor does good. Who gets the glory? Which means, you know, he does, which means God does not get the glory if it's not done in the name of Jesus. Good deeds by non-followers of Jesus actually take away from God's glory. If deeds glorify something less than the Creator, it promotes idolatry, which is not good. A non-Christian cannot do, no matter how good it may be, they cannot do good because the glory will not go to Jesus Christ. Their good deeds can actually lead people away from God and away from God's church. It leads some people to say, well, I don't need God. Look at that person. Look at so-and-so. They're good, and and they don't go to church, and they're not not, uh, believers in God. And so it leads people away from God and his church. And the cancer and the deception grows. I can be good without Jesus is an oxymoron. No, you cannot. If you go to a bookstore, you'll see self-help books a whole section of self. So I went to one, and here's some titles. A Family, A Revolutionary Way of Self-Discovery. Unlimited Human Potential, A New Definition. Beyond Negative Thinking, Reclaiming Your Life Through Optimism. You Can Heal Your Life, Love Yourself, Heal Your Life Workbook, Help Yourself to Happiness. Now, two things I observe when I look at those titles. First of all, people want love and joy and peace and patience. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. People want good things. They want the things of God because they're created in the image of God. And so that's good. They want this goodness. Here's the second observation. The way to get these things of God is from within. Myself. I have what it takes to attain these. The self is the solution which makes the self an idol. No, the self is the problem not the solution. I saw a pillow in a store as I was uh, following Ellen. And I don't go to pillow stores very often. Anyway, and embroidered on this pillow was Believe in you. So every night, whoever bought that pillow, when they go to bed, believe in you is just put into their head. It becomes a mantra. It becomes a religion. And it is so sad because you will disappoint you. You will fail you. You are weak. Please believe in God. And then you will start finding a new you. The you you really are, the you you were intended to be. And I'm not saying don't read self-help. I've read some and they can actually be very helpful. Just read them with wisdom and read them through the lens of Scripture. You're going to need more than willpower. You need the supernatural working of God in your life. And when He comes in, that's when He starts changing us. Let Him in. Let Him be the boss. And the change will start, changes will start happening. So, Sum this up. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 describes two completely different realms. We were dead, now we're alive. We were in sin, now we're alive to good works. This passage first plums the depths of pessimism about humanity. It gets way down here, and then it rises way up to the heights of optimism about God. 
and we have this combination of despair and faith within 10 verses. We were of the world, we were of Satan and the sinful nature, and now we're citizens of heaven, we're in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is our nature. And until we are convinced that our marriages and homes outside of Christ are dead, we will never have God-honoring homes. Until we're convinced that our nation outside of Christ is on the road to destruction, we'll never have a healthy nation. Until we understand we are dominated by these, the world and the cravings of sinful nature, and yes, even demonic forces, we'll never see our need for Jesus. So you have to make a decision. Everyone makes this decision. Are you going to live by your nature or live by grace? C.S. Lewis says, we are all like eggs. That got my attention. He said, now this is besides eating an egg. Here's two options for an egg. An egg cannot go on indefinitely just being an ordinary decent egg. The one thing we can do, of course, is eat it, and that's not the point here. But Lewis says an egg must be either hatched or go bad, right? Either it'll live and hatch to new life, or it'll rot. And he says that's every human being. No matter how good of an egg you are, if you're not hatched, you will rot. Every human being has to make that decision. Are you ready? to be hatched, to be made alive, or will you continue to rot? That is the choice. God will make us alive through Christ. Let's pray. God, this is such a beautiful text explaining the gospel. Thank you so much for showing us clearly who we are by nature and what we will be and can be when we are alive in Christ. Thank you for the life we have. I mean, without Christ, there is absolutely no hope for this world or for any one of our lives. I pray there will be homes here today that will decide we are going to make Christ the center of our home. I pray there will be single people here. I pray there will be kids here say, I want to be hatched. I want to be alive in Christ. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.